0: I'd like to acknowledge Australia's First Nation people as the traditional custodians of the land, and for this episode in particular, the Darawal people. I pay my respects to their Elders past, present and emerging.
1: We're we're innovators. We want to keep keep pushing, Um, and I think it's important in the wine industry at the moment that you really keep doing that. So certainly for a, a company like ours, we work in that innovative space, so we've got to keep pushing.
0: This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Duncan Shuler is chief winemaker at and Wines in the beautiful Marlborough region of New Zealand. Head of a large production of wine, Giessen is also leading the way in non-alcoholic wines. Duncan joins me today to tell me more about what he's been up to just across the ditch. Hi Duncan, thanks for joining me.
1: Hi Shantae, it's a pleasure to be here. How are you?
0: I'm really well. Now that's not a typical New Zealand accent that I hear. <laughs> it sounds like a bit of a mix.
1: Yeah, it is a bit of a mix. I, I've lived in New Zealand for just over 20 years, um, but I was born in England, um, spent some time growing up in Scotland and a little bit in, uh, in Cyprus. And uh, yeah, so here I am 20 years later, I've, I've still got the English accent.
0: Ah, oh, well, that's good to hear. And it's probably, it's a little bit softer as well. So I can feel like you've got a bit of influences from everywhere, which is always nice to have a bit of a mix. It creates a lot of interest, I think.
1: Oh, that's good. That's good. <laughs>
0: So where are you joining us from today? Where are you sitting?
1: Yeah, I am sitting at the winery here in Marlborough and it's a beautiful day. Um, We've had a bit of rain lately and uh, we've had some sort of lovely midwinter, almost floods to be honest. And finally the sun has come out. It's a gorgeous afternoon, not too hot, never gets too hot here in Marlborough, but uh, a beautiful day.
0: Yeah, I mean, you get so much sunshine hours, but like you said, it's always kind of a nice temperate climate. I was not prepared for how beautiful the sounds were as you fly into Marlborough. I, I thought it was just breathtaking and I, and I was kind of overwhelmed. So what an amazing part of the world to work in.
1: Oh no! Look, it absolutely is, and I think I think we're lucky in the wine industry that you uh, there are a few regions that you know, are good wine regions that aren't stunningly beautiful at the same time and have a great climate. Uh, and Marlborough is certainly uh, one of those. Uh, it's it's beautiful. It's it's probably not really regarded as a tourist destination, but it's got a lot on the doorstep. Fantastic um, uh, natural beauty in the Marlborough Sounds, and obviously um, New Zealand's most important wine region.
0: Yeah, I mean, maybe maybe that's a good thing that it's not such a tourist destination so that you can keep it to yourself but a lot of people tend to have um their kind of batch holiday places around the sounds is that right
1: yeah, no, you're absolutely right. No, it is. It's uh, The Sounds is a lovely place. It's one of those sort of spots where you can just get away from it all, um, get out on a boat and stay at a batch that's only accessible by the water. And yeah, you're going to see dolphins and even penguins and do great fishing. Um, so it's kind of one of those rare, untouched parts of the world, and I love it. Um, I think I, I love the sort of almost the rusticity as well of Marlborough. It is uh, obviously a world-famous wine region, but it's still very unaffected. It's very real, and it's all about the produce, you know, the wine. And the food um it's great i love that
0: i think my aim is like in life is to meet somebody that has a batch holiday so that i could maybe occasionally be invited so it's got to go right to the top of the list now after speaking with you
1: yeah look it's, no, it's definitely on my list i think only a, only a little piece of the marble sounds is, is definitely on the bucket list for me
0: <laughs> i can completely understand that so tell me how about how you came to find your way into wine all the way from the uk
1: Yeah, look, it was, uh, it was quite a roundabout trip, um, I was I suppose I was exposed to wine growing up and uh, I think I mentioned earlier I was, I was very lucky when I was quite young that we lived in Cyprus for a few years and um, I've got some great memories of you know we'd eat out probably three or four nights a week so, it was so cheap and uh, sitting in local tavernas sometimes overlooking the water mum and dad would always have you know a bottle or a carafe of the local village wine on the table and they'd usually give me you know a small uh, tiny sip just to taste it and, and have a smell of the wine and I found it fascinating because you could see everything going on around. Around you, the vineyard was often just over the fence and there'd be a donkey working in the vineyard and yeah, you'd often see the, the fruit being picked. Um, so I found it fascinating and then sort of growing up, I, I just started to develop a really interest in, in wine and um, I sort of was, was really interested in science and the two sort of came together. Um, when I left school, I actually studied marine biology and uh, studied that in Glasgow of all places in Scotland, um, great science university but probably not famous for marine biology Um, and then I moved to New Zealand in 2000 and started teaching scuba diving in New Zealand and at that point in time the wine industry was really just getting going it was it was really developing and there's some very exciting wines coming out onto the market and the industry was was seeing a lot of success Um, so I sort of conned onto that and saw the opportunity and went back to university studied wine and uh, went from there
0: fascinating and what a place for you to kind of you know have all the things that you love together in one place when I read that you study marine biology I was like oh that's going to be such a distraction because I'm fascinated with marine biology and I thought try not to ask him too much about that and make sure you ask a bit about his day job (laughs) do you get into the waters um, much over there these days
1: Oh look, I, I do. I probably not as much as I used to. We've uh, we've got a four and a half year old now, so I have to say that um, I uh, I probably don't go diving as much as I used to pre pre children. Um, but I still get out there when I can, and it's uh, it's like I said, we're very lucky. You can drive for thirty minutes, jump in the water, um, and you know it's beautiful diving. Or if you want to catch um, lobster or abalone, you know, power, the New Zealand abalone. There's a lot of it here, so it's a fantastic place for a bit of a mecca for. For diving really and uh, certainly i think when you fly over the marlborough sounds if you're heading to wellington there's on more than one occasion i've seen some some whales out in the in the sounds uh, from the from the from the air so it's, it's stunning
0: oh i mean the the water life and the aquatic life that you must have over there other than that incredible you know produce that you can get but what what are the other kind of um attractions, underwater attractions that you're kind of looking at. Is is it kind of quite a rocky bottom in the sounds or are you is you know, is there a lot of kind of weed about
1: yeah look it's really diverse um you've got you've got what's called the kaikoura coast so down the uh the uh, the coast of the north island sorry the south island um heading down towards the town of kaikoura you've got a beautiful rugged rocky coastline and that was quite heavily impacted by the earthquake of 2016 um but it's still absolutely stunning and that's classic sort of rocky almost sort of california coast style where you've got a lot of a Mm. lot of sea life um very vibrant coastline and in the sounds itself um you know, rocky shoreline, sandy bottom. Um, but there's a lot of wrecks, there's a lot of shipwrecks out in the Mulber Sounds. Um, one in particular called the Mikhail Lermontov, uh, which is a famous uh, vessel that went down quite a few years ago now. It makes for an incredible dive.
0: Oh my gosh, I love wreck diving. Oh, well, that just that's another reason that I have to get over there and do some diving. I just have to brave some of the chilly waters and be prepared for a thicker suit <laughs> than perhaps what I'm uh, used to over here in Sydney. Tell me a little bit about... Um, your experience working throughout New Zealand because you did work both in Martinborough and Central Otago incredible winemaking regions and how did you decide to settle in in Marlborough and how did you come to work at Geeson?
1: Yeah, look, it's uh, I, I have sort of worked a bit throughout New Zealand and I think that what I was probably doing early on in my career was I was, I was sort of following Pinot Noir. Um, I love Pinot Noir, I think like a lot, lot of winemakers in cool climates, it is that yeah that, that great variety that can give you so much joy and so much heartache at the same time and you know, obviously in New Zealand we're lucky that we we can produce some fantastic Pinot Noir, but we've also got several very distinct Pinot Noir regions, Martinborough, Marlborough and, and Central Otago being three of them. Um, <clears throat> So that was part of me really sort of developing, hopefully developing skill to be able to create Pinot Noir in in different shapes and forms, and different styles, and different regions throughout New Zealand. Um, in terms of Marlborough, I I came here. It was really opportunity. I think you know, sort of, obviously, commercially, Marlborough has been very, very successful um, since I joined the wine industry in sort of two thousand and four. Um, it's where a lot of the attention's been. Um, but then with that, you know, obviously with the the, the success of Sauvignon Blanc, um, which has driven you know the industry here in New Zealand. Um, I love that. I I love Sauvignon Blanc, Um, I love what it can provide consumers, especially at the price point, but I still had to be able to feed that that little flame for Pinot Noir. And I was watching Marlborough and you could see that in places like the southern valleys of Marlborough, more and more Pinot was being planted in more appropriate soils and and, and viticultural aspects. Um, And so the Pinot Noir was just getting better and better and better. And it really excited me. So it was an opportunity to further my career, but also still try and craft some really lovely Pinots.
0: I don't blame you for following Pinot around the world, in fact. I think that's a pretty good plan. And Gieson makes some incredible Pinot Noir. Um, The Claven sticks out of my brain because I think that is um, a Pinot Noir that I have been able to pick out of a lineup when I've tried it because I think it's so site-specific and It's just so damn delicious. In fact, I did drink it on my wedding day, the 2014, um, and I was in seventh heaven. (laughs) So tell me a bit about um, the offering of Pinot Noir and how do you think Pinot Noir, especially Marlborough Pinot Noir, fits into the international market when, when you go out into the world to sell it?
1: Yeah, look, at that. that's a really good point. I mean, I think when you look at a, a site like Clavin, um, for us, in a way, we we almost refer to Clavin as its its own region. It's it's we, it sort of almost transcends Marlborough. It, it's not really Marlborough anymore. It's such a special site, and there there are there are several of those special sites in the region, but Clavin probably is the preeminent one. Um, very unique soil profile, fantastic aspects, a um, little bit of altitude, close uh, dense high density plantings, uh, a lot of different clonal material in Clavin. Um, So it has the potential to produce absolutely stunning wines. Marlborough and Pinot Noir still don't entirely go hand in hand, I think, in some areas because traditionally a lot of Pinot Noir perhaps was planted in the wrong places and produced um, quite quite light, very easy to drink, but quite light Pinots that weren't necessarily regarded as very serious um, compared certainly to Central Otago and Martinborough. Um, but that's changing. I think we're seeing now that as people start to taste these new Pinots that are coming out, as we get more vine age, we're planting more appropriate areas, um, the wines have a wonderful structure and they have the ability to age which is fantastic um, so I think that the opinion internationally is 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 getting higher and higher of, of those wines and they're certainly doing well on the international sort of show circuit and, and reviews and things as well
0: Yeah definitely they are and I think also, that there's now um, some really strong regions, you know, throughout New Zealand, and you can kind of, kind of like siblings almost. There's there's the different spots that you go for the different styles, and I think the the broad scope of how good the quality Pinot Noir is from everywhere really brings them all up. But yeah, these days you definitely see people in a restaurant ordering, you know, I want Martinborough Pinot Noir, I want Otago, I want Marlborough, and they're quite distinctive in, in their choices, which is so good to see.
1: Oh, it is. It's great to see people really sort of start to understand those, those regions and even sub-regions. Um, and look, that's what Pinot is all about, isn't it? It's about finding a wine that really expresses where it comes from. Um, and, you know, they're almost two different varieties when you, when you see a, a Claven Pinot versus, you know, a Felton Road or something. They're so different in style, um, but they both have great Pinocity and, and they're just different expressions of, of a great variety.
0: You are able to work with so many different ranges at Giessen so spoiled for choice, I would say. You've got the Uncharted, you've got the Estate. Now your No and Lows, your Organics, um, feature wines, and single sites as well. What do you love about working with? Geeser wines.
1: Yeah, look, I, I think I think more than anything, it's that it's it's the diversity that we have, um, and I think that I think you, you sort of look at satisfaction with your work, and you know, it's always really satisfying to create something like a, a Clavin Pinot or a Clavin Syrah that that you know, does really well in a wine show or gets a great score. That's fantastic, um, but it's also great satisfaction to see wines at the other end of the spectrum at a very different price point, really uh, you know appealing to the consumer at that price point. That's really Really, really satisfying um, and I suppose at Geese like you said we've got everything in between as well we've got a, a broad range um, and then when you add the zero alcohols and the, and the low alcohols on top of that as well all of a sudden you've got another consumer that you can really appeal to as well and a different occasion um, so that's that's fantastic and look, it's just stimulating as well making wine in so many different ways um, we're lucky we've got a lot of great people and the Geese brothers themselves are, are really inspiring to us all so that's um, no, a great place. To
0: be. Dad, tell me a little bit about the, the three Geeson brothers. It really sounds like a f- bit of a folklore tale, but Geesen is really important to um, the history of, of New Zealand wine production. So tell me a little bit about how Geesen got started.
1: Yeah, so initially um, it was the three brothers, so you've got Theo, Alex and Marcel Um, and in 1979 Theo and Alex um, left Germany and decided to essentially start new life in uh, the Southern Hemisphere and actually flew to Australia first up and famously they landed in Australia and within a few days it was a 40 degree day, they were stinking hot, Um, I think they were in Melbourne and they they jumped in the pool and there was a great big snake in the pool, Um, so they jumped. Out and pretty quickly they said let's let's try New Zealand it's it's going to be a bit cooler and there's no snakes um, so they did that and they found themselves near Christchurch. Um, and they were they were inter- interested in wine. They weren't winemakers, but they were certainly interested in wine. They started looking at what was available in the, the local market um, and the local shops, the local bottle shops, and they just couldn't really find anything that was very inspiring. And they're looking around sort of saying, well, look, this is this feels like a great wine region. We could well, Maybe we could make something. Um, and lo and behold, they did. And they got in touch with their younger brother, Marcel, who then studied winemaking and then came over to New Zealand. And they started, I guess, winery in the early 80s um pretty quickly they also um started making some wine in marlborough and of course you know there was great timing as well the marlborough um scene with sauvignon blanc was really taking off and they made some really fantastic examples um and uh, the rest of it is just a, a fantastic success story
0: certainly has and, and then grown you know exponentially i've actually met um theo and i think his his wife and uh been out on their boat at one stage and uh my goodness it was i mean they certainly know how to host um a bunch of sommeliers on their boat and we had lots of amazing wines and a pretty amazing time and and they were absolute characters and and yeah the hospitality and generosity shown by them i think is something i'll remember forever
1: Oh no! Brilliant. No, they are. I mean, they're they're all they're all legends. Uh, three very different brothers, um, but they're all brilliant at hosting in different ways. And uh, no, Theo has always got a lot of great stories. He's just a, a great personality.
0: I love a good storyteller. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about this non-alcoholic range. I really feel that New Zealand at the moment is is leading the charge in that range how did it come about that that was something that you wanted to offer and then where do you start with something like that in terms of not having a huge base of um, comparable kind of products
1: yeah look I think I think that that point you made there is, is part of the part of the motivation there wasn't there wasn't much choice and it sort of came from um a fitness challenge or a health and well-being challenge I should say in, in 2019 at the start of 2019 and across the company um, pretty much everybody signed up to this health and well-being challenge and you had to track what you were eating and how many steps you had done and you couldn't drink alcohol uh, and the winemaking team everybody signed up pretty quickly um, and then we all sat down pretty quickly after that and realized that none of us could drink wine for a month um, so this was <laughs> it was a bit of a shock horror moment um, so we, we called an emergency meeting and sat around and decided how we were going how we were going to do this without losing the challenge. Uh, and literally we said, well, look, can we, can we look at zero alcohol wines? And we looked at what, what was available in the market and there really wasn't very much. Um, and we weren't, yeah, the wines were okay, but we weren't particularly inspired by them. So we literally just said, look, let's let's make one. Let's try and make one. Um, the spinning cone technology was just available in New Zealand. And so we started some trials and uh, had a bit of a play with Sauvignon Blanc. Um, and we loved the trials. We put together a wine that we thought looked great. Um, we showed it to a few other people in the business. And everyone said, look, this is this is something that could really work. Um, and then we just went from there. So um, pretty quickly, we, we saw there was a great opportunity. The market was really just getting going outside of New Zealand. Um, and we just went full throttle. We bought the machine itself. We bought a spinning cone and started making, um, obviously, more Sauvignon Blanc, but then other varieties as well, Pinot Gris and um, Reds, Merlot um, and Rosé. So that's fantastic.
0: Yeah, there's such an offering that you have now. I've had the Sauvignon Blanc and I haven't tried the others, but Sauvignon Blanc, I was amazed just how – much it represented Sauvignon Blanc. I mean, you know, a variety that if you released onto the market and it didn't have those qualities, you'd be pretty disappointed. But so vibrant. I just felt that it, it left you not wanting um, – not wishing for anything else, which I – is pretty hard, especially when you drink a fair bit of wine and you try a lot. Um, some of the, the products I find just leave you thinking, oh, there's just something missing Whereas, really found that that wine didn't. It just gave you all the vibrancy and freshness and all those beautiful kind of um, tropical fruit flavors as well. But run me through a little bit about this spinning cone technology. And, and I, f- I feel that there's been a few different ways over the past centuries of, of removing alcohol. So, why does the spinning cone change things?
1: Yeah. So, um, I suppose one, one of the ways people used to remove alcohol was with reverse osmosis, which does work quite well. Um, but it, it's very, very, very difficult, almost impossible with reverse osmosis to fully de wine. wine. Um, and with spinning cone technology, what you're able to do is, is a couple of things. You're basically Um, essentially the way it works is a form of vacuum distillation. So it is really just a still, but it's working under a vacuum and the spinning cone part of it it supplies you with a very, very large surface area. So you can really distill alcohol at very low temperatures. Um, And that's obviously key because at low temperatures, you're not going to detrimentally impact the flavor of the wine. Um, But it also allows you to do two things. It allows you to remove the alcohol, but before you do that, at really, really low temperatures, you can actually remove just about all of the aroma Um, so you can capture the aroma and spinning cone technology is actually used in the perfume industry where they do exactly that they'll concentrate Mm. and capture uh, distinct aromas so you can take a Sauvignon Blanc and, and capture the aroma of the Sauvignon Blanc put it to one side and then you've basically got a base wine with with pretty much no flavour or aroma, so the most neutral white wine you can think of. Um, that goes back through the spinning cone at slightly higher temperature, and that removes all of the alcohol. And then you can blend some of the aroma back in to give you the characteristic of, of Sauvignon Blanc or Pinot Gris or whatever it is you're making.
0: Wow, so fascinating. It almost sounds like this could be, I want, is this used in, I mean, I don't know, is this used in kind of non-alcoholic spirits as well because it makes it sound like if you wanted to make a distilled product that's quite neutral that would be another way to do it as well almost
1: yeah, look it wouldn't it wouldn't be traditionally how they do it, but we um, we have done some trials ourselves and we've got we've had some pretty exciting results. So um, so it is it's, it's pretty fascinating. They use it in coffee as well. You can use it to, you know, extract coffee aroma out of coffee beans. Um, so the, the technology's been around a lot, um, but in wine obviously it's relatively new um there are other ways of dealkalizing as well but for us we've 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 settled on spinning cone we love the technology uh, i think we're we're really happy with the wine styles we're making and i think that uh, because we own the machine we've actually got a you know a, a sort of a crack team of, of operators who that's all they do is they run the spinning cone and so they're really experienced with it now and i feel like every time we make a new wine we just get a little bit better at it um so uh, so for us it's it's the way forward
0: yeah, yeah. i i I agree with you i think that it's i've really noticed in the last probably you know past year the the quality of these kind of no unload products has really gone through the roof and i think that's probably thanks to this new kind of technology but also people getting more competitive and uh and like you said having more products to be able to um compare them against and taste them so we now have quite a few different um wine judgings or uh, non-alcoholic wine shows, and some of which you've won. I believe one over in the UK, was it, from the London?
1: Yeah, we we won some awards at the IWSC, uh, which was fantastic. That was great. The R is Zero um, uh, won there, and we also won at uh, Wine Pilot as well. So we won some golds and uh, some trophies there as well. So um, it's, yeah, it's great great to see those wines starting starting to be recognised.
0: Definitely. And it, it, like you said, it's so nice. It's it's almost impossible to judge zero alcohol wines against other wines. It does need to have it its own category. And so it's great to see people like Angus Hewson from Wine Pilot, you know, creating these great awards where you can all get together and, and, and taste them. And, and like I said, this is really adding to um, another product for a whole different consumer group. And who do you find are asking for these kind of products?
1: Um, It's been really interesting. It's been a fascinating learning for us. I think when we sort of got into it, we assumed that it would be people who who can't or don't drink alcohol um, for medical reasons or or pregnancy or decided to not drink alcohol. And certainly those um, do form a, a percentage of the consumers. But probably the biggest group is actually regular wine drinkers. Um, people who still drink alcohol, but they've made the conscious decision to be a bit more mindful and reduce their alcohol intake, maybe a few nights a week, just, just having a de-alkalized beer or a zero alcohol wine. Um, and that's what seems to be driving the category for us, which, which is actually quite cool. I quite like that because it means that, you know, we've, we've got to, the challenge is that we've got to produce a zero alcohol wine for people who the night before they might've had a really great full alcohol wine. Um, um, so they are true wine enthusiasts, and I think that's where we've sort of um, maybe hit a bit of a button, is that we're sort of operating in that premium space um, and hopefully delivering a really premium zero alcohol experience, um, which is quite cool.
0: Yeah, it definitely is. I think it's really cool. And, and like I said, I think you guys are probably kind of waving the flag and, and leading the way and... and paving a path for others to follow. Uh, Duncan, tell me, is there a wine that you particularly look forward to making each year or is there a wine that, you know, piques your interest, you find difficult to make each year? What's that kind of stand out for you that you really, um, you know, tip your hat to?
1: Yeah, look, I'd probably have to go for Clavin Syrah, Um, And I know I've I've talked about Pinot, and I could easily say the Pinot as well, but um, Pinot is always difficult to make. Uh, Making good Syrah in Marlborough is extremely difficult. (laughs) Um, It's it's a really cool region. So we're talking about a variety that loves a little bit of warmth. Um, Clavin is a unique site, and we only have a small amount of Syrah there but uh, the, the exciting thing is you just don't know if you're gonna be able to make it or not. So as you approach vintage, you're looking at the weather, you're looking at the vines every day, how are they reacting? Is it gonna be warm enough? Um, have we got our crop level right? And then once you pick the fruit, trying to nurse it through. Um, so it's a really exciting wine. So I think it's it's one of those ones where you, you don't even know if you're gonna be able to make something that's good enough to put in the bottle. Um, and so it's a huge challenge, but when when you get it right, um, it's, uh, it's, it's a fantastic wine.
0: Yeah and there's some really incredible syrahs you know within New Zealand as well that um are distinctively New Zealand I think you know we especially in Australia we've got you know shiraz vines coming out of our, you know bottom but I really think you know the the some of the styles coming out of New Zealand you just can't place them anywhere else in the world and um it's really exciting to see to see the syrah from Marlborough um you know do just that Talk to, the Claven site is basically old vines, so 30 year old vines, um, deep clay rich soils. Are you, do you, are you still sourcing the grapes from that? I think that that's how it started originally, is that right?
1: it it used to be yeah but we we actually own the vineyard so we've owned the the vineyard for some time now Um, so that's that's been fantastic for us because it's allowed us to then sort of manage uh, obviously manage the vineyard Um, and uh, particularly all of us just get to know it really well we spend a lot of time up there Um, it is only a very small amount of what we make of course really small production wines but very important nonetheless they really sort of you know um, they're the halo wines of of the company Um, and um, yeah so we spend a lot of time up there deciding you know how things are being grown and pruned and everything else um so yeah so we we basically take all of the fruit um and a couple of other partners take a little bit too
0: uh, i was about to say you've devastated the other people that were making <laughs> wine from that <laughs> site but it's good to know it's in really good hands i believe it's certified organic is that right
1: it is yeah certified organic uh that's that's a really important part of it as well Is is that and it's 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 just i think to be honest you just get better fruit when it's in balance organically
0: Yeah. Well, I'm glad to hear that you guys are looking after it and I look forward to seeing what else the site can do. But like you said, with some great sites, there's only so much of it that can go around and you can only make so much at a time. So when it's released, you just got to get your hot little hands on it.
1: Yeah, no, that's right. And certainly something like the Syrah, I think, uh, you yeah, know, tiny, tiny production. We don't even produce it every year. Um, and, and the Pinot and the Chardonnay. And look, I suppose that's uh, when you talk about the sort of the fine wine end of the spectrum, that's those little things that make it so special is often they are rare. They're hard to find. Um, but when you get one, hopefully it's a, it's a great wine drinking experience. And it really takes you to where it comes from. It's got that expression of place.
0: Fantastic. And what's, what's next for you in the next couple of years? What are you looking forward to and, and what's the next challenge for you other than keeping up with all your outdoor activities and kayaking and fishing and diving and, and uh, raising a child as well? What else is next for you?
1: Yeah. Yeah, gosh, I'm sure we we'll be at school next year. That's scary. But no, look, it's there's a, there's a lot um, going on. We we don't we don't sort of uh, we don't rest up and and, and take it easy at and If we find we're having a success, we we like to look at what we're doing and say, well, how do we get a bit more? How do we make the wine better? How do we sell a bit more of this? Um, so we're, we're innovators. We want to keep keep pushing Um, and I think it's important in the wine industry at the moment that you really keep doing that so certainly for a a company like ours we work in that innovative space so we've got to keep pushing Um, I think like you said before we are in a way leading the charge with the zero alcohol space but we we can't rest on our laurels we've got to keep pushing that and make sure we stay ahead of the pack I suppose Um, so there'll be some new products I'm sure coming out Um, meanwhile I think we want to still be regarded as a producer of some of the the best wines in New Zealand so um, keeping the Clavin wines and the Ridgeblot wines and the Uncharted wines really at the top of their game as well Um, so plenty for us to 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 keep on top of
0: (laughs) yeah it sounds like there's absolutely no rest for the wicked but it sounds like you work hard and you also know how to play hard as well at the same time so it sounds like a good balance
1: yeah, no, it is, a, it is a good balance. Yeah, no, definitely. It's, I think that's the most important thing, isn't it? It's, uh, you can uh, you can you can work really hard, but if you don't have that that sort of playtime as well, um, it gets tricky.
0: Definitely, Duncan. If you could only drink three beverages for the rest of your life, if you had to narrow it down to three, what would they be and why?
1: Yeah, look, it's it's a really really tricky question. Um, and to be honest, it's uh, three alcoholic beverage. I was. I would have to have a beer of some sort in there. I can't imagine, certainly during summer, finishing a hard day of work or during vintage, finishing a day of vintage and not being able to have a beer. Um, so I'd certainly <laughs> put like Pilsner in there. I, I love craft beer, but I mm. find that, um you know, the really hoppy sort of high alcohol beers, you have one and, and then that's sort of enough. But a really lovely crisp Pilsner, um, whether it's sort of, you know, from Czech Republic or, or New Zealand or Australia, yeah. um, is great. And uh, so there's something I could drink with, with, with my mates when I'm watching the rugby or after a hard day of work. That's got to be in there. Um, and then I'd have to put Pinot Noir in. Um, it's got to be there. It's, uh, it's <laughs> such a wonderful, great variety. And I think probably specifically, uh, I'd say Burgundy. Um, it can be fantastic. It can be really disappointing, uh, but whatever you get, you're always <laughs> going to get some sort of emotional connection with the wine, good or bad. Um, and hopefully that sense of place as well. Where did it come from? Uh, I think um, if you look at maps of Burgundy, I mean, I, well, I speak for myself and, and probably for you. If you're a wine geek, you, know, you can look at those maps for hours and they never get boring. Um, so that and then talking of sense of place, I'd, I'd also go with single malt whiskey, uh, especially Islay malt. Mm. Um I think my, I think I mentioned earlier, I grew up in Scotland for a little while and we used to go to Islay and Lewis and places on holiday every now and then. Um, and I think when I smell a good Islay malt whisky now, it actually takes me back to when you step off the ferry in Islay, you, you sort of get the smell of, of the salt air, of the seaweed on the beach and people are burning peat in their homes instead of wood. So you get the smoky, peaty smell and the great whiskies that's what they smell like. Um, I think for me it's probably just about the best expression of terroir you can get uh, so that would have to be there as well for me um, so those if I had those three I'd pretty much be able to cover all my bases I think <laughs>
0: yeah i agree with you and interesting to hear that about islay because that's what you picture in your mind and certainly you smell it from across the room when someone pours a good islay whiskey but it's interesting to to hear you say that that you step off the ferry and you feel that it's kind of what i would always hope the experience is like so uh i think that they're really good choices and like you said you've covered all your bases you've got something to drink at whatever time of the day or whatever weather and um I, it's hard to disagree with you <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah no it's a very difficult question but uh there's, uh there's there's plenty to choose from isn't there but hopefully that that covers everything
0: definitely well it's been so nice to talk to you duncan thank you so much for joining us for all the way from marlborough i hope i get to go and meet you in the flesh sometime and then pick your brains more about diving um i'll do that on my own time <laughs> then if that's okay <laughs> Um, But thank you so much. I I love the Geese and Wines, and I think you live in a slice of heaven. So I'm not surprised that that's where you ended up, considering all the things that you like to do.
1: No worries, Shante. Thanks so much. And, uh, yeah, we hope to see you over here sometime, and uh, we can cheer you around Marlborough.
0: Sounds good. Cheers to you, Duncan.
1: Cheers. Thanks a lot. Bye.
0: This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Stay tuned for more stories from the world of wine and drinks, Listen in every Thursday on your podcast app. Follow us on Instagram at overaglasspod and contact us at overaglass at deepintheweeds.com.au.